And we're up again. It's good to get eight seconds to catch your breath. Good morning. So we are continuing today in our teaching series where we're looking at the person of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And I need to fill in because uh, from what we read last week to what we're going to read today, there is a, um, uh, some action that takes place. We're jumping ahead in the story a little bit, okay? And I need to fill you in on what takes place. So last week, if you remember, there was um, this, this scene where Joseph is in prison. You remember he's uh, been sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers. While he's in slavery, working in a home, he's accused of a crime. He is falsely accused of a crime, but he has no way of proving his innocence. And so they send him to jail. And it's not for like six to eight years. It's for the rest of your life until you die. And we said we would expect to see Joseph or maybe any of us in that situation who would be angry or who would be bitter or would be full of uh, self-pity. And any of that would have been understandable. But what it says in this passage is that Joseph isn't that way. He's not filled with anger and bitterness and hatred and, uh, and, and self-pity. But rather, there is a change in him where we said he is known as one who serves the other prisoners. That he goes and serves and seeks to love fellow prisoners. He, he is trusted by the guards to do that. And he also is one that interprets dreams of other prisoners. Now, in last week, from last week to this week, some stuff takes place. First off, one of the dreams that Joseph interprets is for a chief cupbearer of Pharaoh, which I am still hoping makes it into the 2017 covenant budget. I feel like a chief cupbearer would be important for us. I don't know what they do, but I just feel like it's, it's like one of those things that's necessary. Um, so if any of you guys would like to give to that, we're open. Designated gift for the chief cupbearer, John Wasson. You would be a good cupbearer. <laughs> I feel like that'd be good for your heart to do that. So, I don't know why they're laughing. But maybe it's something to reflect on. Okay, I'm going to stop now. All right. The good news is this is the one that's on the internet. So right now there are people going, what is happening? Anyway, um, so he interprets the chief cupbearer's dream and says to him, you are going to be set free to go serve in Pharaoh's court again. And sure enough, that's what happens. And the chief cupbearer goes out and he forgets about Joseph. And for two more years, he serves Pharaoh as the chief cupbearer. And Joseph just stays in prison. But one day, Pharaoh has a series of dreams. And maybe you've had dreams this way, because I've had them, where you wake up and it's a dream and it kind of shocks you, but even when you know it's a dream, it still stays with you, right? And you're like, man, I feel like I'm supposed to listen to that. I feel like I'm supposed to hear that. Well, Pharaoh can't shake these dreams, and nobody can tell him what it means. The first dream that he has is that there are seven cows, healthy, beautiful cows, sitting by a river. And then all of a sudden, seven skinny, starving cows come and stand next to him and actually eat the healthy cows. But even as they eat the healthy cows, they don't become healthy themselves. They just stay uh, skinny and diseased and, and unhealthy. The second dream is very similar to it. He says that there are seven ears of corn. They're healthy ears of corn. And then seven withered, dying, diseased ears of corn come next to the healthy ears of corn and eat them up, but they stay diseased and dying. And Pharaoh can't have anyone who interprets this dream for him. And then the chief cupbearer says, wait a minute, I might know a guy. 
And Pharaoh hears about Joseph and he calls him out of prison. And he appears as this prisoner for years as a slave in front of Pharaoh and interprets his dreams. God tells Joseph what the dreams mean. And, Fa- and Joseph says to Pharaoh, here's what it means. Number one, we are going to have seven plenty, plenteous years. There's going to be great crops. There's going to be great uh, herds, our cattle, our goats, everything else. It's going to go great. Everything's going to be wonderful. But after those seven years are going to become seven years of intense famine. And... If we don't prepare for it, it could could crush us. So we need to start preparing in the good years for the difficult years to come. And Pharaoh says, that's a good idea. And I think you're the guy to do it, to lead the effort. And in this remarkable way, Joseph goes from a prisoner to being somebody who is released from prison to now being the second most powerful person in the entire empire of Egypt who is preparing the people and has the power to prepare them for the famine. And that is where we find Joseph today. Okay? It's Genesis chapter 1, verses 46 through 49. This is what it says. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plenteous years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sand of the sea that he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, no matter who we are, how we walk in here, I pray that you would speak to us today about how we are called to live individually and as a people. We pray for your leading and your guiding from your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Joseph's dream and his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is that the society of Egypt is under siege. They're about to go over the the brink. They've got seven years to prepare and then they are gonna go over the edge because this kind of famine has the power to destroy the entire empire, okay? And I want you to put yourself today in that kind of place. What would happen here in Austin, Texas, January 29th, 2017, if you really genuinely believe that our society is about to go over the brink? And I don't mean like, yeah, the last few days have been rough. I'm talking about like, you really believe that we are about to fall off, that the very fabric of our society is about to collapse. What would you do? What would our leaders do? Because there are a growing number of people who believe that that is what we are facing in our time today. And they've believed it for a while. It's something that I've become educated on in the last couple weeks, and some of you guys may know a lot more about this than me. It's the survivalist movement. You guys heard about the survivalist movement? And it's people who genuinely think the world and our society is ready to collapse. And we need to prepare for how we're going to sort of survive when everything falls apart around us, right? Whether you need like food or ammunition or, and what you hear about is that it used to be like a few people who would have like a bomb shelter in their house with like cans and stuff and bottled water and they're ready for it. But this week I read a story in the New Yorker that talked to, it was entitled survival of the richest. 
And it talked about how this movement is growing in our country today. And it's not just growing among a few people, but some of the wealthiest people in our nation are preparing for our society to begin to collapse. Entrepreneurs who are good in business at seeing what's going to happen, and they've built multi-million or even billion dollar companies because they're good at saying this is what's going to happen and this is what we need, are preparing for the collapse of our society. Now, here's where the survivalist literature tells us these are things we only go like, why would they think that? And again, I'm just telling you what I've been reading about, right? We have some slides that are going to come up. This is the first one. This was on a survivalist website. Okay. Um, And I need to say this before we begin. Everything I'm about to tell you is true, is real, right? And that doesn't mean when I don't say that, that other sermons like, oh, I lie to you a lot. I'm not saying that. But you are going to listen to this going, is he making this up to make a point? And everything I am telling you is real. This is a real image on a survivalist website, and it depicts why we should be scared. This is a, obviously the Statue of Liberty. It's flooding. There's fork lightning. You know why? Because it's scarier. <laughs> and then someone went sailing by it, because that's what you do. It's good photos of a view that rarely we get to see of the Statue of Liberty. And this is there, and this is one of the claims. And again, I'm just telling you what's out there. Why should we be scared? Well, one of the main threads is climate change, and that's what this was tied to. Climate change could happen, and it means that the seas are going to rise. I don't know if this happened suddenly in a storm. I don't know if it was like a gradual rising. It just happens to be raining when they kind of put this image up there. But the seas are rising, and this may happen, and, and we need to be prepared because climate change could do this, right? And again, just telling you, that's the literature out there. Here's another strand, right, as, as, you, as you watch this. Uh, another one is the growing gap between the haves and the have-nots in our country. In this article, Survival of the Richest, it talks about how since 1980, almost half of American jobs have not increased in their income, meaning they're earning essentially what they were earning in 1980. But cost of living has gone up a lot. And in that same time, while income levels for about half of American workers have stayed the same, income levels of the top 1% have tripled in the same amount of time. There is a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots. And history tells us, according to the survivalists, and this is often true, that, there, that the masses of people will not stay long in a place where very few have very much. That's actually, in some ways, as economists, how you define a third world nation, where very few hold tons and tons of resources, and there's a gigantic gap between the haves and the have-nots. And that number, and this is true in our society, is growing. And so they look at this, and it's like, man, there are going to be riots, and there are going to be mobs, and and we've got to get ready for this. So this article talked about how this growing survivalist mentality, looking at American culture today, and and what they see as the collapse of it, here's what they do. Next slide. Survivor condo. (laughs) This is real, okay? Survivor condo, and this is their logo. The survivor condo was started by a guy named Larry Hall. And what he did is he bought an abandoned nuclear missile silo in Kansas. This nuclear missile silo had an active nuclear Atlas missile from 1961 to 1965 during the Cold War, but it had been abandoned for years and decades until now, and Larry Hall heard about this and this movement among very wealthy people of fear of what's about to happen, and so he bought a nuclear missile silo in Kansas, two hours outside of Wichita. 
because I guess they didn't think the Russians were going to nuke Kansas and that that would survive. I don't, and I don't know. That, that's where they built it. And it's this thing that was designed. It's got nine foot thick concrete walls, hundreds of feet down in the ground. And Larry Hall built it, bought it from the government and rented and, and rehabbed it for $20 million. And this is what the survival condo is. 15 floors, hundreds of feet underground of apartment and condo units. And the tagline is, the protection you need, the luxury you deserve. <laughs> I'm being serious. The protection you need, the luxury you deserve. Hundreds of feet down in the ground. And kids, if you have to go there someday, you can survive for up to five years. Five years that you can close the doors, it can withstand a nuclear blast. They've got air filtration systems in case people try to poison the air. It can filter stuff out. They've got ways of harvesting crops underground, which is actually quite cool. They've got ways of, of having fish and, uh, and, and um, um, uh, all kinds of different foods. They have different ways of generating electricity. They have a schoolroom under there. You don't get out of going to school. They have a dentist. They have a doctor's office. They have all kinds of different things. And each unit you can get fully furnished for the price of $3 million. $3 million and they're sold out. They've been bought up. They're gone. Good news, Larry Hall's bought a second <laughs> nuclear missile silo and is starting his second survivor condo. What do you get for $3 million? Well, here's some amenities of what it can look like. You can get a swimming pool in your own nuclear missile silo. The palm trees that are there, they've been burned and wasted in the real world, but you have them painted on your concrete wall going around there. There's lounge chairs. There's a, there's a spa that you can go in. There's like lounge chairs around there. There's some workout equipment. There's a gym. There's a movie theater. There's a bowling alley. All of this stuff, hundreds of feet underground in the survival condo. And the next one, the last image of it is like my favorite. Um, how do you decorate a $3 million luxury condo hundreds of feet underground in a nuclear silo, you may ask? Well, Larry Hall's thought of that, friends. And how you decorate it is by putting up these high-resolution video screens. Because you can't open a window there. And you don't want to be reminded you're in a nuclear silo while the world is falling apart around you. You need things to remind you of the good days. So you can, when you buy one, choose the video loop you want playing on your apartment window that's not a window. And so this person has like chosen the, the, maybe like the Golden Gate Bridge, I guess what I guess that is, like the Bay Area. And it runs. So in the day, it's during the day, and there's like surfers going, and there's boats going in and out at night, and the sounds are there with it. So it's like you've opened your window on San Francisco Bay. And um, one of my favorite ones was a, a, a wealthy woman from New York who bought one of these. Her condo in New York looks out over Central Park. And she loves Central Park, so it's her favorite place. So her unit has the video from her apartment, her condo looking out over Central Park. They're now roving mobs going around since it's been destroyed. But she has video of Central Park and taxi sounds and the things people say in Central Park on a loop, sound and video in her apartment all the time. Wow.
One of the things that's fascinating to me is that in the article there is, as we, as we'll just keep this up for a second, um, a, a hedge fund manager who is a, a very, very wealthy, successful hedge fund manager who has friends that have bought into the Survivor condo. And his name is um, Robert Johnson. And he talks about this. He talks about this growing movement of people who are investing in ways like this. And one of the things that Johnson says is that he talked to some of his friends and coworkers who have bought into these places and asked them some questions. He said the first question he asked him is, if you believe society might be collapsing in front of us, how el what else are you doing besides this? For example... If you are one of the survivalists who believes that global warming is happening and it's going to impact everything and that, and that it could cause the collapse and the Statue of Liberty is going to be underwater and all this, if you believe that that is what's happening and that our society could collapse as a result of it, he said, how much money are you spending on things like investing in, in renewable energies and trying to get us off fossil fuels and the things that folks who would hold that position, how much are you spending to try to solve the root problem? The answer, not very much. Or if you believe that this growing in income gap between the wealthy and, and, uh, and everybody else is a thing that our society cannot survive, not about whether you think it's morally right, but if you would just believe society cannot survive with this huge gap in the haves and the have-nots, he says, how much are you investing? He points to times when this income gap has been big in American history before. He says there were people like Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller, wealthy, wealthy individuals who saw the same thing, and they started investing in impoverished communities and neighborhoods. Carnegie built thousands of libraries around. They built parks. Rockefeller helped found the University of Chicago in an urban area in order to bring urban revitalization to change the issues. For the wealthy, I'm talking about I learned the term the centimillionaires. I didn't even know that was a term. For people that, just a plain old millionaire is not enough. Hundreds of millions of dollars are worth, or billionaires. How much are you investing outside of this to change that systemic problem? Answer, not very much. Because what I'm doing is making sure that me and mine are taken care of. How would you respond? if you believed that the very nature of our culture today was on the brink of collapse. Because Joseph's response, my friends, to that news which he gets is 180 degrees different than this. Now Joseph, when we first encounter him, might have invested in Survivor Condo. He was a young guy, he's like, man, I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal. My brothers are going to bow down before me. I, if the world's going to come to an end, I need to survive because I'm a really, really kind of big deal. And so I'm going to make sure that I'm okay. But what we see is a change through Joseph's pain that he's walked through, where as a prisoner and now as a leader in Egypt, he is seeing whatever resources are at his disposal in order to seek the welfare and the flourishing and the care of all people in the society around him. Joseph, if he had had this kind of mentality, could have looked at Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, man, I got a deal. Here's what this means. Let's keep this between us. Let's quietly store up as much as we can. And when the famine hits, we can charge people whatever we want for what's about. We can make a killing off of this. 
But Joseph's understanding of how we are to use our stuff, our possessions, our wealth, our resources has changed and evolved where he is now in a position just as he cared for prisoners in prison to say, how can we use our stuff in order to change the fabric of the society and the needs of people out there? That God has blessed us in order to be a blessing. And so what does that look like to live in that kind of way? What would it mean for us? What would it mean for you? What would it mean for me to a, look at the, what's happening in society today and to ask ourselves, what would it be to respond faithfully in the ways that we see Joseph doing here? What would that look like in Austin, Texas here today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is one of those things where we can talk about it. We can talk about what we do because every person in this room to some degree or another has the ability to act. Every one of you to some degree or another has the ability to do something about this and to respond. Because how you handle your stuff is an inherently spiritual matter. How you handle your money, how you handle your wealth, how you handle your possessions. And I love talking about this on Sundays like today because I'm not going to ask you for anything. There's no pledge cards going out. There's no campaign that we're announcing today. This is just what we're supposed to do. Five practical steps. And I invite you to reflect on these and you could enact these in your life today. And I believe that it's what we're called to do. Number one, we need to understand from the very beginning that we are our brother's keeper. Joseph has been molded in shape from someone who's going from a, what we talked about last week, a first half of life point of view of like, I'm going to create a world for myself where I'm a big deal. And my career is a big deal. My dreams are a big deal. My life's a big deal. And building that life to someone who's moved to a second half of life experience where he is seeking to care for others, even as a prisoner with nothing. He has understood that the reason God has placed us on this earth is to be our brother's keeper. And when the church is at its best moments, it understands that this is inherent in our call as well. We talk here at Covenant about what it means to be a, a church as we see in Acts chapter 2, where there were four rhythms they dedicated themselves to. Right? And three of them are, are what we would look at and go, yeah, that's what churches are supposed to do. That's spiritual act. They devoted themselves to scripture. We can hear that and we're like, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. They devoted themselves to intimate community. You heard about covenant groups and small groups. Yeah, that's what churches do. That's the realm of churches. Number three, we're to, we're to um, commit ourselves to prayer. Yes, that's what we're called to do. And lastly, we're called to be extravagantly generous with our stuff. We are called to give whatever we have to wherever we see need. And you're like, whoa, that's the realm of finances. That's not what the church is supposed to get into. When the church has been at its best, it has rejected that separation. Because God has blessed us in order to be a blessing to others. To see the needs of the society around and to understand God's looking at us today going, you are your brother's keeper. And I have given you stuff in order to live that out. Now, and I have to say this, there's a live question in our world today and in our country today as to how wide is that embrace? Who is truly our brother? This is not a new question. This is a question that has been around for as long as human beings have been around because human beings are human beings and we are fallen, broken people. And I want to tell you how the text answers that question of who is my brother? And there's a little spoiler alert that's going to happen in this, of the Joseph story. The famine comes. And the famine doesn't just strike Egypt, it strikes throughout the Middle East. 
And it says that as the Egyptians start going to the storehouses where Joseph has stored up food and grain to get Egypt through the famine, that all of a sudden people in neighboring countries where the famine is just as bad start hearing about the Egyptians and how they prepared. And it says, and this is what the text says, that they start coming from different lands in order to come to Egypt to see if they can have access to the food that has been stored up there as well. Joseph is going to encounter his brothers again who have sold him into slavery. Do you know why he does? Because they are starving and their father Jacob sends them down to Egypt to beg for food. And they are welcomed. They are fed. That's what the text says. There is no one sitting there going, I'm sorry, are you an Egyptian? Okay, then you can have access to the storehouse. They fed everyone. 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 Do you hear me? Austin, Texas, 2017. United States, global, everyone. That embrace is wider than what we can imagine. You are your brother's keeper. That's not Thomas's perspective. That's God's word. That's why God has blessed us, in order to bless our, be a blessing, to be our brother's keeper. Number two, we have to make a detailed budget to know how we acquire our money, our possessions, our wealth, our stuff. You need to know what comes in, and I don't care if that means you work one summer job for two months out of the summer, and it's like, well, it's not very much. Everybody should know what comes in. You should know what comes in through your inheritance. You should know what comes in through your income. You should know what comes in through investments. You should know what comes in through dividends. You, every person and household here should know a number, and that number of what comes in, because that number is significant. We need to do the math and the hard work of knowing exactly what we anticipate coming in, which leads to number three, that we need to track our expenses. Where does our money go? And there are great apps that you can get. If you need help with this, Mint, there are others that can do this for you. And this is critical because we need to know where our money goes. And the fact is, most of us don't. And the fact is, is that most of us who don't would be surprised if we knew where our money went. How we handle money is an inherently spiritual practice. And there was some really wise person, it might have been Jesus or someone else, who said something along the lines of, where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. Something like that. You want to know where your values are? Look at where your money goes. You want to know the things you really value and care about? You need to track where your money goes. Because I promise you, if you've never tracked where your expenses go, you will surprise yourself. You might surprise yourself in good ways. You're like, wow, I didn't know that we did that. That's really cool. That's actually aligns with what we say we want to be. But you also might surprise yourself in bad ways. For example, for the most part, people think they're more generous than they actually are. It's like, are you a generous person? Yeah, I feel like I am. I kind of give stuff away and stuff. Statistically, we are, more, we are not as generous as we think we are. You need to know where your money goes. And then we got to wrestle with what that says about us, good or bad. Do you feel like you're good? Yeah, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Where's your money go? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I don't want to know that. I just rather feel like a good person. Okay. You can do something about it. Fourth. Prayerfully discern the call on you regarding generosity. 
Prayerfully discern the call on you regarding generosity because there is a call from God, just as there was on Joseph, of how we are to handle our stuff. And we are called to be, as we say here, extravagantly generous. Extravagantly, that the first church gave whatever they had to whoever had need. Let's just settle for a step down from that. The easiest thing we're going to find of a biblical calling to generosity is a tithe. 10%. That is the easiest thing you're going to find. Trust me. Right? It's like, I don't really mean that. They gave everything they had to whoever had me. I mean, that's, that's not literal, right? That does make us feel better. The minimum we can find is the tithe. Now, good news. There are ways that we can track individually and as a country, what do we give? Give USA annual issues an annual report. The good news is the last year we have information for is 2015. We gave more money, more of a percentage of our income, Americans gave away in 2015 than 2014. So we're moving in the right direction. Anybody know what the statistic is? What percentage do we give away as a nation? Of what comes in? Two. Two. Good news We took one step from that, we're now at three. Three percent is what the average American gives away. Glad we're moving in a good direction. Used to be in the two points, now we're in the three. We're not even in spitting distance to the easiest call on generosity. You're gonna see in Joseph is that they took one-fifth of the crop of the Egyptians, 20% of the Egyptians had to get stored up to wait for the years of famine. Last. And it seems weird when you see this last point. You experience the joy of it. And this is the last part, and it's so critical and so important, and it's so tied into biblical generosity of how we handle our stuff, is that when God leads us to giving, it is not out of just rules. I am not going today saying, these are the rules, God's looking at you, you better give, you better know what comes in, you better know what goes out, you better be generous, because if you don't follow the rules, God's gonna know it, and God's gonna be really angry. That is not the spirit of grace through which we operate. We have been freed from the law into a spirit of grace. And so what we have to do is to understand that when God calls you and I to extravagant generosity in Austin, Texas in 2017, it is not out of religious legalism, but it is out of an idea of freeing ourselves from ourselves. Because nobody that I know who has ever challenged themselves in being generous has ever told me that they regretted it later on. I've never known anybody who said, man, I could have afforded a $55,000 top-of-the-line luxury car. I could have done that. But man, I had to give $15,000 away to like World Vision and kids who are impoverished around the world and combating uh, trafficking here in Austin and gave to IJM to combat slavery. And as I look back on it, I wish I had just spent the money on the car. Nobody does that. Nobody does it. Because it is a joy and a life when you and I have the kinds of hearts where we give in practice versus doing what survival condo is the extreme example of, which is I protect what I have on my own. There is a fear and there is a trepidation to one's heart that lives that way that God is looking at you and I today going, you don't have to live in that kind of fear. You don't have to live in that kind of way. You can have the faith and the courage as Joseph does in seeing an uncertain situation by responding with extravagant generosity. And not only will you change the world around you as you do that, but your heart will be liberated as well. 
And so we get to experience the joy of giving. That when God says, and when Daryl Guter a couple of years ago said to our church, what does it mean to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin? That didn't mean that you and I just see here with warm, fuzzy feelings about Austin. It doesn't mean that we just kind of feel it. It means that we act, that we give, that we serve. And part of that is how we live with our stuff, as well as how covenant does. Do our aspirations and our actions meet? You don't have to guess. You can know and grow and change. May we live our lives in this way. May we be faithful leaders like Joseph in our own lives, in our families, in our city, in our nation, and in this world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would lead and guide us as your people, trusting, having the faith and the courage in all situations to be obedient and to embrace your call to life. Lead us as a church. Lead us as individuals and as families. Lead us to being our brother's keeper. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.